He says, now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part I believe it. For there must be also factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one of you takes his own supper ahead of others. One is hungry, another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. For what I received from the Lord, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he took also the cup after supper, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Therefore, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself. And so let him eat the bread and drink of the cup. He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home. Thus he come together for a judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. And Father, we thank you so much that you have not just given us clear instructions about how you want your supper observed, but Lord, you've given us great grace through that supper. And Father, I pray that you would help us to appreciate what you've given us communion for. And that Lord, that that the meaning of it, the purpose of it, would be something that we long for, that we participate in, in a way, Lord, that draws us closer to you and keeps us centered on you, both as individuals and as a church. Please, Lord, we pray you do these things, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to take some time uh, today to talk about what it means to properly observe the Lord's Supper. I I do really believe that it's something that... Um, I've been challenged by, for years, that we don't take it as seriously as we should. Part of that is, is, is being evangelicals, being those that take the Bible seriously, not uh, over-mystifying uh, communion, and that's right, but we, we don't see it with a reverence that we should. In fact, I was exhorted by a brother earlier last year about this, and I was challenged because I thought, yeah, I feel that, but I'm not really sure what, how, how we get a, that across, a, a or how we fix that. And so in praying about this and thinking about this, I really realized that this issue, this coming together around the Lord's Supper is so important. It's so so intended to be something that is life-giving to the church that we really have to give uh, give it its due respect and its due understanding. 
And so I want to talk to you guys about that today because I really believe that we're coming up to a year in 2020 that's going to be a year of radical change. I mean, there's so much stuff going on that I want to talk about that really it's going to be easy for us to be focused on all the changes. It's going to be easy for us to kind of think about the logistics, the nuts and bolts, the new things that God is doing, and forget that really it needs to stay about Jesus. And communion really helps us keep it about Jesus. So before we get into the text, I want to spend a few minutes and I want to talk about those changes. I want to kind of announce some of the things that we have, we feel like that God has put on our heart uh, moving forward for 2020. A lot of things that we've been moving towards for many years are coming to pass this year. So, if, if you have your handout, you'll notice that the handout has stuff on both sides. One side has the notes for the study through 1 Corinthians, which we'll get to in a second. The other one has notes for these main points, and that's on purpose, so you can take that home and pray about these things. Here's some of our goals. In the, in the verse there, James 4.15, is, is the verse where James talks about, if the Lord wills, we shall do such and such. And he, and he kind of chastises his readers about making plans without kind of submitting those things to God's will. So we've made these plans, we believe, by the leading of the Holy Spirit in much prayer uh, and we believe this is what God wants to do but we say Lord you're in control so these all these plans are according to the Lord's will he can he can change things anytime he wants but here's the goals that we have for 2020. First and foremost, we have this church plant happening in the Armouth area. You guys have known about this. We've had a Bible study down in Golson for years. Well, we've now kind of, uh, been, it's been made really clear to, to Zach and, and Miranda and the team down there that they're going to actually plant something or start something, an outreach service in the Barrack Estate in Yarmouth. And the Barrack Estate is one of the roughest states in, actually in the country. It's one of the places that needs Jesus most, which is really, really exciting. And so they're going to plan weekend services soon. There's going to be a Saturday evening outreach kind of a service. They're going to do a Friday morning mom and tots group, both in this place called the, I'm going to pronounce this right, Peggy Community Center. And so we're really excited about what's going on in Golston in, in, or in Yarmouth uh, starting in this new year. So where, is Zach and Miranda here? Are they here? I saw, I saw them somewhere. Where are they? Can you stand up? So this is Zach and Miranda. They're the ones leading this. And that's little Phineas. <laughs> and they're the ones leading the, the, the church uh, outreach there. And so see them after church. If you're interested in being involved, they definitely need more help in being involved. Thanks, guys. You guys rock. But also what we're going to see happening pretty soon is we're going to see um, Hillcrest is actually going to open. You guys know that we, we received a building that was gifted to us uh, back in May of, of 2018, I think it was. So at least that's when it was offered to us. I think we got a hold of it in December of, of 2018. Um, and, and basically, we've kind of done some refurbishment. Quite a lot of work's gone to it. Our offices are there now. Our Friday morning prayer meeting is there now. And we're looking at starting, uh, moving the youth group there in April. So, Lord willing, uh, we'll have the things, all, all the things done. In fact, put this in the back of your mind. Uh, next week, there'll be a sign-up for the work party for the 18th of January. Uh, we'll have a work party. We'll need some skilled workers, skilled laborers, as well as unskilled laborers to get as much done as we possibly can. And we'll be having several work parties between now and this time. But the goal is to get the building done to a, a standard to where we can move youth group there. We can shift the offices around uh, and move youth group there. And we're also going to start a Friday night adult study. 
So that one, so when parents come and bring their kids to youth group, uh, what happens is um, they don't kind of have to just kind of go away for two hours and then come back. They're actually going to be something for them. But also what's going to happen is we're going to be having youth group for both older youth and younger youth every Friday. Uh, Rory and Jess have been working super hard at raising up other helpers. And we're really excited about what God's doing. I mean, I don't know if you guys realize this or not, but e- even just what our youth group is now, I think is it, is it, is it this next year or the year after where we're going to gain like another 10 kids that will be old enough to come to youth. Just, to, just from our church, not to mention the outreach and things we're going to do. So we're really excited about what God's doing in the youth group. So we're really excited about having that in their own space. One of the rooms actually at Hillcrest will be designated as a youth room. We'll, we'll use it for Sunday afternoon service as well, which we'll talk about in a minute. But it'll be actually a youth room. Now, the, the adult study we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing uh, kind of the separate study that is, is, has two parts. One is going to be this 3 to one evangelism course, and you'll hear more about this in future weeks to come when we get closer to the time. But if you want to just Google that, you can see it's a great little three-part evangelism course that, that I really like because one of the things it does, it starts with something that you wouldn't, you wouldn't think you'd want to start with evangelism, but actually when you see the course, it's brilliant. It starts with the Trinity, the idea that our God is three in one. And it talks about the fact that because our God is three in one, uh, we have a God who's a relational God, and he's planned out exactly what he wants for us. And so it's, I really encourage you guys to check it out if you can. Again, we'll probably show a promo video of this in months to come. But that's a three-week uh, uh, evangelism course, or, or introduction to the faith course is probably a better way to say it. They're really short uh, sessions. We'll have table discussions with table leaders. And at least into an essential course that I'm developing right now. And the essential course is going to be set up for those that basically uh, either are new to the faith or just need to get kind of grounded in some basics. So we're going to be looking at and answering questions like, well, who is Jesus? How do I follow him? What is the Bible? How do I use it? One of the things that we've kind of realized, and I remember this because when I got saved at 18 years old, I I wasn't churched at all. So when someone would say, turn to the book of Malachi, I'm like, Malachi? Where's that? What's that? You know, I have no idea how to use a Bible, let alone why I should trust this big old book that someone gave me to read. And so we're going to deal with these kinds of things, and that'll be a seven-week course. And that what's on our heart to do is kind of uh, tw- at least twice a year after Easter, after Christmas, have this these two courses running together, so that when people come into the church, they're new, they're coming to faith new. We have a place to kind of make sure they're grounded in the basics. Um, also, what's going to be happening is uh, we're looking at starting Sunday uh, evening or afternoon services uh, around September 6th. That's the goal date. Now, I want to be clear about what these things are, okay? Uh, there's a lot of questions, even though we've talked about this several times. Uh, I've talked about this several times from here. For some reason, people forget. So here's what's happening. What's going to happen when we start having Sunday afternoon services at Hillcrest, we're going to be one church with two locations, Okay, so there'll be a 10:30 service here, like there's there's always been, and there'll be an identical 4:30 p.m. service there. When I say identical, I mean uh, same, basically same format, basic same format, and same message. All right, and and the idea is we're we're, we're asking people, we're asking people to pray about being a part of that. Uh, that congregation in Hillcrest to really do mission in that neighborhood. So several people I've talked to already are interested. We have, uh, I think we have three or four families here who are thinking, yeah, that's probably where we're going to end up for sure. And we're talking to the leadership team about what this is going to look like. And the goal is to send 30 or 40 people, including kids, to that location, have that second service, and really just reach that neighborhood for Jesus. That's what we want to do.
And so this is what we're looking to do. So, so as we said to you before, I encourage you again, you need to be, if, if Servants Church is your church, you need to be praying about where God's calling you to do mission. Because if you're a Jesus follower, God's called you to do mission. He's called you to be a disciple who makes disciples. And so if God's called you here, great. Stay here, 1030. Let this be the main service you're a part of. If God's calling you to do the new work in, at Hillcrest, great. Be a part of that. Commit to that place and do mission. If God's calling you to go help Zach and Miranda, great. Go help Zach and Miranda. I think they're going to be a Saturday night thing. And go be a part of that. But, but we want you guys to see that this is what God calls us to be as Jesus followers, as those who are disciples who make disciples. Now, now with this, we're also going to make sure that we have an all-church gathering three, at least three times a year. So probably Easter, Christmas, the normal ones. Church camp, for sure, will be the time when we kind of say we're all kind of doing this thing together. And, and we're still praying about what we should do with that uh, leadership-wise. Now, this brings up the last thing that is really important for us to understand, and that is this year, 2020, we see uh, that God's going to appoint pastors, elders to Servants Church. At this point in time, right now, I'm the only pastor slash elder. Biblically, they're the same thing. And that's not because by choice. It's just kind of worked out that way. But we've been pursuing a leadership structure for years that is a flatter leadership structure. Where there is a, a group of men who do real pastoral ministry together. They lead the church together. And so we are doing a training thing right now. We're going through a great book called Biblical Eldership with a bunch of guys. Not all these guys will become elders for sure. Some are just too young, uh, too new to the faith. But we're all learning together. What does Biblical Eldership look like for us to do this together? And so this is what we're planning to do. We're planning to see uh, men have hands laid on them to become elders. We also foresee there being more deacons raised up, both men and women, to be deacons. Now, I want to be clear about this, too, because I, I, I've had some resistance about this. I'll be honest. I mean, some people have come to me and say, okay, come on, John. It's, it's, yeah, it's fine. Get guys to help you. But, you know, it's better that you stay in charge. But it's not. It's better for us as a congregation to have a group of men who love each other, are committed to each other, are seeking God together about how to move forward. Because that's what we should be as a congregation as well. And so it's important you recognize these are not guys helping me, but guys co-leading with me. They're all going to do the same things as me. Our giftedness uh, is going to be different, and they're not all going to be in the pulpit necessarily. But we all have the same responsibility. We're sharing the weight of the responsibility of leading servants' church to be disciples, to make disciples. They're all going to be paid by the church, but they all should be worthy of the same honor and respect that you guys have shown me. And by the way, thank you, because you guys have always been really good to me. Occasional oddballs now and then, but most of the part, for the most part, you're really good to me, and I appreciate that. Well, these elders will be worthy for that, of that same honor and respect. And so we, we, we see God doing this. God's going to appoint these things this year. So these are exciting things that God's going to do this year, but it's also a lot of change. It's also a lot of change. And the thing is, if we're honest, none of us like change. None of us like things being different. We want things to be comfortable. We want things to remain the same. But the reality is, we need change. And the reality is, if you now look back to 1 Corinthians 11, the reality is, God has established the Lord's Supper to keep us focused on Jesus. Because if our focus isn't on Jesus, the change won't be good. So let's pick it up in verse 23. What I want to do today, I, I should say this too, it's really important that I say this. 
One of the things that we're going to be doing uh, in the Sundays to follow is, every fourth Sunday is still going to be a bring and share Sunday. It's still going to be a Sunday where we, we remember the Lord's Supper. We, we participate in the Lord's Supper. And that's going to be taught uh, every fourth Sunday by a different brother in the church. And they're going to be teaching a, a text that is conducive to communion. And basically what I'm doing today is kind of laying out the five things that communion is, is meant to help us do. And so what will happen is, as these brothers are teaching on that fourth Sunday from whatever text they've been assigned to teach. It won't be two Chronicles or, or one Chronicles, that'll still be me on the other Sundays. But when they teach this text, they're going to tie it back into communion and we're going to have a time of waiting on the Lord. We're going to have a time of remembering the Lord, of celebrating what Jesus has done for us. And so what I want to do is kind of just lay out some really basic things. There's a lot of things that we see in Scripture where Scripture is describing actions or, or events that we can learn from. And there's other Scriptures where the Scripture is prescribing things. Where Paul or Peter or John or Moses says, this is what God says needs to be done. And what we have in 1 Corinthians 11 is a prescription. Where Paul, in correcting the Corinthians for their bad practice of communion, is saying, these are the things that you need to be. And so with this, I'm bringing out five things that I think are important for us to recognize about communion. And I hope that these things really help us uh, to gain a, a respect and a hunger to come be a part of the Lord's table. So the first is in verse 23. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. Now, it's important to recognize the language that Paul uses here. I received from the Lord that which I, deserved, uh, I delivered to you. He uses this, this exact same language in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn that. It'll be on the screen, but listen. Paul writes this. He says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. Notice the same language. But here's what he says. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. In other words, what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 15 is say, here's the gospel that I preached to you. Here's the gospel, the good news that's the foundation of everything else that we do. That sets the parameters for everything else that we do. That, I, that allows us to have a relationship with God. It's this gospel and he's saying, hey, I didn't make this up. I received it from Jesus and I'm giving it to you. Now you go back to 1 Corinthians and this is the same way he brings forth the Lord's table. That he says, listen, I didn't make this up. I didn't create this. The apostles didn't create this practice of, of remembering the Lord through this supper. He says, the Lord gave this to us. This is what I received from the Lord. Now, we don't know for sure when Paul received this from the Lord. We don't know if this was part of the supernatural revelation that he got, that he talks about in Galatians uh, chapter 1, or, or that he just learned this through Luke and Luke's recordings uh, of Luke's gospel or the other, other uh, apostles. We don't know for sure. But he's being really clear. Listen, it's Jesus who established this tradition that we keep. This is not a church tradition. It's a Jesus tradition. He established this. It's what we call a sacrament for that reason. Now this is important because traditions are not automatically good or bad. We measure their value by scripture. What's the scripture say about traditions? Now some traditions, and this is why different churches look different, different churches do things different because they've inherited different traditions. Now if they exalt those traditions above scripture, that's bad. But there's a lot of room for us to have different traditions and still be faithful to scripture. 
But it's, impossible, it's important for us to recognize what are the things that Jesus establishes. What are the traditions, so to speak, that he says you need to keep. And one of these is, listen, partaking in the Lord's Supper. Doing this. In fact, we need to understand this. When we are partaking of the Lord's Supper in the right way, we're actually obeying Jesus. We're doing it out of obedience. Lord, you said to do this. We want to do this. But we also want to do this right. So here's the second of five. Look at verse four, uh, verse 24. Verse 24, Paul writes, And when Jesus had given thanks, he broke the bread and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You notice he uses the word remembrance in verse uh, 4. He'll use it again in verse, sorry, verse 24. And he, he uses it again in verse 25. That's a really important thing. Because when he says, do this in remembrance of me, it, it kind of hints at what the purpose of communion really is. Now, I, I bring this up because I want you guys to, to listen to some verses that I'm going to read to you from John chapter 6. Because these are verses that I do believe uh, speak uh, into what communion is, but have been misused uh, and, and created traditions created around them that aren't helpful. Listen to this. This is Jesus Speaking, John chapter 6. Then Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now when he said this, you need to know that you, he, he probably looked around and saw people go, Ugh. In the same way, the first time we read this, probably thought, Ugh, that's weird. What's that mean? But he said, listen, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my, drink, my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And the living, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. Now, there are some church traditions, the Roman Catholic tradition uh, of communion. They have a doctrine called transubstantiation. And what that means is they actually believe that, that when the priest takes the, the elements of communion, the, the bread and the wine or the great crushed grape, when they take that and they bless it, it actually becomes the physical body and blood of Christ, which is a bit, ew. it's weird, isn't it? Now they say this, listen, they say this because of these verses. They say we're taking these verses at face value. It's a good thing to take scripture at face value. And so it must mean this. Now we know it doesn't mean that. And I'll tell you why we know that. Because the Bible is very clear. The law of God is very clear that you shouldn't eat blood. Even the New Testament says you shouldn't eat blood. So blood sauces, you really probably should eat it, just so you know. It's gross anyway. <laughs> but, but, here, but here's my point. My, my point is this. We know that Jesus didn't come to contradict the law. He fulfilled the law. So he's not saying do something that's against what God has already said. He wouldn't say that. So there's, there's got to be something symbolic. And again, this ties back to that word we saw in 1 Corinthians about remembrance. There's another tradition that's by Lutherans and some others that's called consubstantiation. And they believe what happens is when the priest blesses the, uh, the, the, the bread and the wine, that what happens is that Christ kind of joins himself to the bread and the wine. And the, the analogy they use is, it's like a sponge. A sponge doesn't become water, but if you put a sponge in water, it absorbs water, it's surrounded by water, and Christ is somehow wrapped up into that. Now, again, I think 
Where do they get that? That's them trying to explain away what the Catholics had said, really. But actually, if we just kind of use some common sense, especially if we see when Paul prescribes communion, actually, this is not about um, Christ joining communion. Now, now, here's something else. What's happened to us as evangelical Christians is we've kind of said, okay, communion is about remembering Jesus. And so we've kind of treated it as it's just simply a blank remembrance. It's just something we do. Well, if that's the case, why do we actually have to eat the bread and drink the wine? If it's only just a blank remembrance, right? I mean, what's the point? Well, why do that? Now, I think it's got to be more than that, because if you think about this, think about the two sacraments that Jesus commands us. One is baptism, the other is communion. Baptism is something that you do once. Well, you're supposed to do it once. Some of you guys have broken that rule, but you're supposed to do it once, and you're supposed to be as a believer, according to Scripture, right? So you're baptized as a believer one time, right? And yet you take communion. If you're a Christian, like I've been a Christian for 32 years, I've taken communion, I don't know, 300 times or something? Over and over again, we take communion. And so there obviously, is, it's, there's a different purpose to it than, say, baptism. Baptism identifies us with Christ. We're publicly identifying with Christ. Communion is something else. Communion is about us, and one of the things communion is about, at least, is us recognizing our dependence upon Christ. So that what Jesus did historically, we are dependent upon continually. And so the, the reason that he attaches it, there's, 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 there's biblical reasons. There's a, sort of a, there's a fulfillment in communion from the Old Testament Passover that someone will cover in months to come that I'm not going to talk about today. So there is that, but there's also something else here. There's a picture here, listen, that when we take communion, we are recognizing this is a spiritual act of spiritual sustenance. That we need him. He's commanded that we do this to remember we need him. And actually imbibe that. Take that in. I, I don't, I don't want to raise of hands, but I wonder how many of you guys have actually fasted for a, a period of time? Like, like even if you fasted for 20, I don't know about you, but it might be, it's probably pretty obvious, but I love food. <laughs> so even when, I, even when I fast for 24 hours, it's, sometimes it's tough. And if you've, if you've ever fasted for longer than that, it's, it can be really hard. It can be a difficult thing to do. And I don't know if you've ever been forced to fast. I don't know if you've ever actually gone hungry. I, I've had just a few, thank God, I've only had a few short seasons in my life when I was a child when there was literally nothing to eat at home and I didn't know where my next meal was going to come from. Just a very few times. But I'll tell you what, in those times, my desperation for any kind of sustenance was felt deeply. Communion is a time for us to re-feel how deeply we are dependent upon Christ and his perfect finished work to sustain us. We feed on Jesus. Now, I believe this is an act of remembrance. I don't believe anything changes to, uh, to the, the, the crushed grape or the broken bread. I don't think it changes spiritually. But listen, I do believe that Christ is present in a special way, that he wants to manifest his presence, maybe, in, in a way, by his Spirit, through the act of communion. That it's a chance for us to, to commune with him. That's why it's called communion. 
Say, Lord, this is something we're doing fresh. This is why I believe he commanded that we do this. It's my conviction that in Acts chapter 2, where the Bible talks about how the early church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and prayers, the breaking of bread wasn't just having some food together, it was actually practicing the Lord's Supper. They did it all the time. Why? Because the Lord commanded it, and they recognized, listen, that Jesus is the nourishment that we feed on. It's him, who he is, what he's done. And we need that often. When we partake in the Lord, of the Lord's Supper, we are declaring our ongoing dependence on Jesus. Now, here's the third thing, verse 25. Jesus is also the covenant we trust. Look at verse 25. In the same manner, Jesus took the cup after the supper, saying, This is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Again, there's some symbolism being fulfilled specifically about when he took this cup that has to do with Passover that I'm sure will be talked about in weeks to come. But it's important that we recognize that Jesus is saying that, that, the, that he's establishing the new covenant. Now the Jews, the, Israel, the, the nation of Israel, was longing for this new covenant. God had promised them a new covenant because they failed on the old one. And God says, look, okay, the, the covenant, this old covenant is not going to work. Not because it's not a good covenant, but because you aren't good people. And all the old covenant can do is prove that you're not good people. None of us are good people. So God promises a new covenant where he does something supernatural in us. Takes out a heart of stone, puts in a heart of flesh or a living heart in us. And Jesus is saying, this new covenant is established, listen, in his blood. So that, listen, when we take communion, we partake of that crushed grape, we're recognizing that we're a part of this new covenant, that we're in this new, do you know what a covenant is? A covenant is a contract that's motivated by love. And because it's motivated by love, it's a contract that's made, it's done with the pay, on payable of death. This is like when the old, uh, old, uh, old Testament word for covenant is a word that literally means to cut. Because when they would make a covenant in the Old Testament, what they would do is they'd get an animal. They would say, here's what the covenant's about. We agree to do this. Both parties agree to do this thing, whatever it is. And they would slaughter an animal and they would literally cut it in half. And they'd lay the pieces out and they'd, together as a promise, they'd walk in the middle of those pieces of that slain animal. It was to say, this is, this is how serious this is. This is how committed we are to this contract motivated by love. So here's what happens. Jesus doesn't say, here's the animal split in half. He just says, here's me, pierced. Here's me, my blood spilled. Here's me, the sacrifice by which this new covenant is committed. See, here, here's what the scripture says. Listen to this. In Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, here's what the Bible says. But now Jesus, our high priest, has given us a ministry that is far superior to the old priesthood, for he is the one who mediates for us, notice, uh, us a far better covenant with God based on better promises. See, the Old Testament promises were based like this, okay? I promise to do this if you do this. So the Old Testament promises were do. The New Testament promises done. 
Jesus says, I promise to commit to you. I'm committed to you. I'm going to get you from point A to point B. From the glory of coming to meet me for the first time to the glory when you're made like me in eternity. I'm promising you that and it's based on what I've done on the cross. That's the new covenant. Jesus is the covenant we trust. His work, his death, his resurrection. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we acknowledge Jesus as the proof, as the evidence, as the sufficiency of God's commitment to us. Have any of you ever had the thought that, okay, I I think Jesus loves me. I'm not too sure if the Father loves me. Have you ever had that kind of thought? Like God, the Father, he's the grumpy one. He's the Old Testament God. Have you ever had these kind of thoughts go through your head? These are demonic thoughts, by the way. But we, uh, we have these thoughts. There's this God, and God's really grumpy, and Jesus is really nice. And Jesus says, please, Daddy, be nice to these people. But that's not the God of the Bible. Our God is three in one, and it pleased our three in one God to save us so that God the Son took on human flesh and came to this earth. Now, it's important for us to, to recognize that we're under this covenant. And that because we're under this new covenant, we can believe that God is committed to us. When we take communion, that's what we're acknowledging. We're saying, I believe God is committed to me, and Jesus proves that. Fourth thing, verse 26. For as often, this is Paul now writing, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. Now, one of the things that you need to understand about, about the New Testament specifically, uh, but even more so Paul's writing specifically, is that when Paul uh, uh, refers to the crucifixion of Christ, like he did earlier in 1 Corinthians when he says, I want to know nothing among you except for Jesus Christ and crucified, or here when he talks about the death of Christ, he's, he is thinking not just the cross. He's thinking the death and the resurrection. That those two things go together. They're linked together. You can't really separate those two. If Jesus didn't die a substitutionary death, the resurrection means nothing. If he didn't raise from the dead, the cross means nothing. You guys follow me on that? The two are, are, are totally connected. And so when he says we proclaim the Lord's death, we're proclaiming a death where death died. Because Jesus overcame death through resurrection. We're proclaiming a death where, as we've talked about before, just talked about now, the covenant of God is made because our sins are dealt with. So here's what's interesting. He says, we proclaim this temporarily. That there comes a time when we don't need to proclaim this anymore. You know why? Because there comes a time when the resurrected Christ returns, and guess what happens with us? We're all resurrected. We're all resurrected. We're all in this place. Now, this is important because not only was Jesus' death validated by his resurrection, his resurrection guarantees our resurrection. We know this because of a couple different things that Jesus said, as well as a lot of the the whole tenet of the New Testament. Listen to this. What Jesus says in John chapter 5. Jesus says, don't be surprised. Indeed, the time is coming when all the dead in their graves will hear the voice of God's Son, and they will rise again. Those who have done good will rise to experience eternal life, and those who have continued in evil will rise to experience judgment. That's hopeful and sobering, isn't it? 
Here's the reality. No one dies and it's over. Death, according to scripture, is not annihilation, it's separation. When you die physically, your, your body is separated from your soul, spirit. Okay, you're separated. And then when you're resurrected, you're given a new body. You can look at 1 Corinthians 15 and check this whole thing out. So there's a reuniting that happens. Now, in that reuniting, there's a reuniting that happens either in, in, in condemnation because we haven't put our faith in Christ or in eternal life because we have put our faith in Christ. But the point is, Jesus says, not only is, is, he, is he going to be resurrected, but he's going to resurrect us. Interesting, when Jesus is, is establishing his supper, communion, here's what he, he says in Matthew, according to Matthew's Gospel. He says, according to the cup that he drinks, he says, notice, mark my words, I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Guys, listen. In a very real sense, the kingdom of God is already. We need to know this. this is, we get to enjoy being under the Lordship of Christ now. We get to learn to follow him now. We get to see him work now. We see Jesus reigning through his people now. But it's also not yet. It won't be fulfilled completely, to totally, until he comes back. When we take communion, listen, we are proclaiming that Jesus is coming back. And we, he, when he comes back, he makes all things right. All injustice is sorted. All crime is punished. Nobody gets away with anything. And all righteousness, goodness, is established forever. The world we all want comes to pass only because of what Jesus has done and what he will do when he comes back. So when we proclaim, when we take communion, here's what we're doing. We are, we are proclaiming our expectations of all things becoming right when the Lord comes back. And we're assured of that because of his death and resurrection. That's a big deal, isn't it? That's an important thing, isn't it? Are you beginning to see why it's important that we see communion for what it is? And why we make it a priority? Now lastly, in verses 27 to 32 we see this last thing that communion is about. Communion is about us recognizing that Jesus is the change we need. And I need to preface this next bit by recognizing that what was going on in the Corinthian church was pretty bad. So, so I think we need to be careful because part of the application of this is recognizing that maybe we're not in the same place that the Corinthian church was. Does it mean that we don't need to correct our view of communion or grow in our appreciation of the Lord's Supper? But, you know, we're not necessarily doing the same things that they're doing. Or are we? Because here's what was going on in the Corinthian church. In the Corinthian church, communion was meant to be a time where they recognized their oneness as Christians. They were one family. There was no rich and poor. There was just Jesus followers. There was no black or white. There was just Jesus followers. There was no Jew or Gentile. There was just Jesus followers. And the meal together was to share that. We are one family. You know, my kids don't, don't you know, come uh, home at the end of the day and sit around and wait for us to say, please, come in and have dinner. You, no, you're welcome. They come in and say, when's dinner? I'm really hungry. Who's supposed to cook tonight? As family, they expect to eat as one family together. 
So when we come together for communion, this is why when we do communion, we tie it into a shared meal together. It fits with what the early church did as well. We do it because we are one family. Here's what the Corinthians were doing. They were basically coming, and the rich people would come with their beautiful picnic packets, baskets, you know, these gorgeous amounts of food. There's the, the finest cheeses and meats and wines, and, and they'd have this glorious meal. And the poor people came with nothing sometimes. They had nothing to bring. And then, and then, you know, when it's time to actually participate in the Lord's table, when they're going to share the common loaf and the common cup, when it's time to do that, a lot of the wealthy people were drunk. And what would happen was a lot of the poor people were so ashamed, they felt like, well, maybe I don't belong here after all. And there was this ugly division. It was so bad that Paul talks about in the, in the verses we read earlier that some of you are, uh, are sick and asleep. That means dead. That it was so bad that God was, it was like God was saying, okay, this is so bad. I'm going to have to chasten you to the point, I'm going to have to chasten you or, or, or discipline you to the point of sickness or even death because you're not getting how blasphemous it is the way you're doing with the Lord's table. Now, I honestly don't think that we're that bad. In fact, here's the two options I believe that we have, if I'm being honest. Either one, we haven't got that bad, because I don't know anybody who's sick or dying from this. Not that I know of, seriously. I, I, I've never seen any kind of correlation of that. Or, and this is scarier, we're not God's kids and he's not chasing us. That's kind of scary, isn't it? That's even scarier. Now, the reason I'm bringing this up is because one of the things that's supposed to happen when we come together as the Lord's people is that we come together and we partake of the Lord's Supper because we recognize it's Jesus that's the change that we need. He has to bring the change, and he's provided for the change, and he's the measure of the change that's going to be brought. We're going to be made like Jesus. And, And here's the thing. If you don't want that You don't want Jesus. I know that sounds harsh and heavy. But if you don't want to be changed, if you just want to get out of a hell free card, you're in the wrong place. And you don't, you're you're wanting the wrong Savior. Because Jesus loves you so much that he doesn't leave you the way you are. And we take communion to remember this. And some of the things that Paul chastens the Corinthians with are good, good sort of insight for us about what this change looks like and how it comes to pass. First, look at verses 27 and 28, and then also verse 31. 27 and 28. Therefore, Paul writes, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let each man examine himself, and so let him eat and drink of the cup. Now, notice he says, unworthy manner. He says it again in verse 29, this phrase, unworthy manner. He doesn't say as unworthy people, because if you're a Jesus follower, you know you're only a Jesus follower because of God's grace. You don't deserve that position. You know that. I mean, it's one of the things that sets us apart from other religions. Other religions say, I, I, I hope to get to heaven uh, if I'm a good enough person. And I think I might be a good enough person. As Christians, we go, I have no right to be with God forever, but God's given me that. I expect to be in heaven, but not because of me, because of Jesus. That's the difference. So we know we're unworthy people. But he's talking here about partaking in an unworthy manner. In verse 31, he says this, If we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. 
So listen, what he's talking about here is, is making sure that, that if we're going to pursue the change that Jesus has for us, if we're going to experience the power of coming to the Lord's Supper together, we're going to, listen, we're going to have to do some real self-examination. First and foremost, we need to make sure that we're actually in the faith. Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 13. says this, if I can find it. Don't you hate it when the pastor's on a roll and then he can't find his notes? It just really thrashes things. There it is, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Paul writes, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Have you actually put your faith in Jesus in his death and resurrection? He says, test yourselves. Do you not re- realize that Christ is in you? In other words, it's Christ in us that's making the change. Jesus is changing us from the inside out. He says, unless, of course, you fail the test, what's the test? Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is? Do you believe that Jesus accomplished what he said he accomplished through his death and resurrection? Do you believe that he wants to change you? Do you believe that he can change you? See, we examine ourselves before we take communion because when we take communion, it's that it's that statement of faith. It's that, it's that expression of worship back to God. God, I believe you can change me. If you can raise Jesus from the dead, you can change me. You can make me like Jesus. If you love me so much to, that you would forgive me on the basis of Jesus' finished work on the cross, I can believe that you are going to finish the work that you started in me. And communion is about that. It's about recognizing that. So, so that when we talk about change, we mean a change that requires a bit of self-examination. We've got to be honest with ourselves. Listen, if you're here and you're not yet a Jesus follower, we want to say, first of all, we're so glad you're here. We, I, I love it that sort of unchurched people who aren't used to church can come to church and go, oh, I like to be here. This is good. I'm learning stuff. People treat me well. I don't feel like a leper when I'm here. I feel like, okay, I can be here and I can, I can learn. Maybe you're challenged by what you hear, but you realize this is a good place for me. We, we give God all glory for that. We're so thankful for that. And we're so glad you're here. But we want to be so clear with you. Listen, please don't act like you're a Christian until you know you're a Christian. <laughs> and, and I mean that. If you are like trying to make sure you never use salty language because you want to be a nice person and impress us, it's not going to help you. I don't really want you dropping F-bombs, but I'm just saying, I'm just saying, you know, that, don't do that for us. Do you see what I'm saying? If you feel like, well, I want to I be respectful, so I'll go up and I'll get my communion elements, and you don't believe in Jesus, don't do that. Because it's actually disrespectful. What we're saying is that Jesus does want you. God wants you. Christ's death shows that God is inviting any and all. But until you surrender to him, don't say you're a Christian. Until you say, all right, Lord, I'm, uh, I admit that you bought me at a price. Don't say you're a Christian. Don't pretend. Do some self-examination. Do I believe this? Do I really believe this Jesus? One of the ways that I know that, that uh, one of the ways I see, because the thing is, it's, it's really hard for us to look at someone else and know for sure if they know Jesus or not. And so we've got to be really careful that we don't judge other people. So if someone says they believe in Jesus, I take him at face value. I say, great, that's my brother, that's my sister. If they believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. But we do need to examine ourselves. And one of the things that I, 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 I look to hear is when people start talking about, yeah, when I first, you know, when I first started getting involved in it, 
I, I didn't understand, but now I understand it. It's better for me. I, I still wonder, do they, do they actually get it? <coughs> because Christianity isn't about it. It's about him. It's when people start going, gosh, Jesus is real, and he's alive, and I need to know him, and I need to trust him. That's when I go, the Lord's got that guy or that girl. The Lord's doing something there. So this is not about condemning you. This is about making sure you understand why Christ died and why communion is powerful and important. So it's a change that requires some self-examination. Look at verse 29. In verse 29, Paul writes, He who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, I believe in this context, Paul specifically saying what the Corinthians were guilty of. They weren't recognizing that they're one body in Christ. I believe that's what he's talking about here. And I believe this is, this is important for us. And I, I want to be honest, too. There are other Christians, godly, Bible-believing Christians, that would disagree with me on this. But good guys agree with me. I don't know if you've ever heard of Wayne Gruden, but Wayne Gruden believes, agrees with me. So, or I agree with Wayne Gruden, so he's a good guy. So I'm in good company. But I believe this is what this is talking about. This is talking about, listen, this is talking about the fact that part of communion is us recognizing our oneness. And there's great change that comes when we recognize our oneness. If you think you can grow as a Jesus follower by yourself, you're deceived. If you think you can be made like Jesus by yourself, you're deceived. We need each other to be conformed to the image of Christ. This is why we so stress being a part of small group, being known and knowing people. And communion is us recognizing our oneness. Guys, listen, do you realize this is a great testimony to the world as well? When we, a bunch of really radically different people, all come together under Jesus and we say we are his sons and daughters. We are one in Jesus. That's a testimony. And when we recognize that we need each other, and we learn that we can trust in what God is doing through people in our lives. Man, do we begin to grow. See, Christianity isn't a spectator sport. Everyone's meant to participate. Communion is about us recognizing, yes, Lord, we're yours. In fact, it's interesting because earlier in 1 Corinthians, Paul said this. He says, it's not the cup, the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks. A participation of, uh, in the blood of Christ is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body. We all share the one loaf. Do you see this? There's a unity in this. In fact, some churches, uh, and I think this is a good thing, we, we don't do this for various reasons, but I still think it's a good thing. I've tried to do this a few times and I get, I get vetoed. But uh, so a lot of churches will literally bake one loaf of unleavened bread and you literally have to tear a piece off yourself. And some will have one cup that they share. Some traditions will kind of they wipe the edge of the cup and then turn it or something like that. And one of the complaints I get is people say, that's gross. I don't want people staring, that's gross. And so we haven't done that. There's little individual cups. That's all right. You know, the Bible doesn't specify how that's supposed to be done. So, but I love the one loaf and one cup imagery. Because we are meant to be one Family, and to declare that oneness when we do this. That's the change that we need, especially in our individualistic culture. We need to see we're one. Lastly, verse 32, Paul writes, But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord. And this is why God chastens us, listen, 
that we may not be condemned with the world. You know, I, I find it, to, to be honest, I, I understand it, but I find it a bit heartbreaking when we have a time of self-examination and people who I know are believers, they've, they've professed faith in Christ. I've seen the, the, the work of God's grace in their life. I've seen the fruit of the Spirit in their life. I, they would still profess faith in Christ at the end of the service. But I see those people after self-examination not taking communion. Because the purpose is not for us to, to not draw near to God. The purpose for us is to draw near to God as those who have been cleansed from their sin. Now, I, I, can, I can think of maybe one exception when that would be good. That is, if you know somebody is, has something against you, there's a division between you and another Christian, and you know you should get it right, and you haven't got it right. I can see you not taking communion and saying, I've got to get this thing right first. I think there's, a, there's wisdom in that, potentially. But by and large, the self-examination is not about, oh, I am so bad, I am so bad. It's not about that. It's a time of thanksgiving. It's a time of remembrance. It's a time of us to go, gosh, Lord, you're so good. You are changing me. And you will continue to change me. And you will continue to teach me how to love my brothers and my sisters. See, this kind of change, listen, this kind of chastening proves that we're actually God's children. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 12. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. How many sons get scourged? Everyone. We all get chastened. We all need chastening because we all need change. Praise God for that. Communion is about us saying, Lord, thank you that as I sit here, and I don't have to, I'm not trying to figure out, well, where's, the, where's the bad? Where's the bad? Don't go there. All we do is sit there and say, Lord, as the psalmist prayed, Lord, search my heart. Show me if there be any wicked way in me. Show me where I need to, to, to turn from a sin. Show, show me something I need to let go of. Something I need to hold on to. Show me where I'm not trusting as I should. Show me where I'm not walking as I should. Show me where I, I, I fall short still. And we, 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 when God shows us that, we confess that as sin. God, forgive me for that. And we receive cleansing. And communion, we take communion after that to say, Lord, we do acknowledge and thank you that we are a forgiven and a cleansed people. And you're changing us. Are you getting how important and powerful the Lord's Supper is? I'm going to ask the, the music team to come back up. And we're going to sing Tis So Sweet to Trust in Jesus. And as we sing this, I want to give you an opportunity, as Jesus followers, to do some self-examination, but also to come up and grab your bit of the broken bread and the crushed grape. And take that bit back with you to your seats and just hold that. And we're going to partake of it as one family. Now, if you're here today and you're not yet a Jesus follower, you, you haven't yet come to that place where you can say, I know I don't deserve heaven, but I get heaven, I get eternal life because of what Christ did for me. 
You know you're a sinner that needs God's mercy and that mercy was made available to you through Jesus and his death and his resurrection, his life, death, resurrection. You, if you haven't come to the place where you go, I'm sure of that, I know that, then just hold off. Just sit. Let this be a time of reflection and self-examination. But don't partake of the Lord's Supper. It's not for you yet. But if you're here today, and that's not been where you've been, but as you heard what we talked about today, you're thinking, I want that. I want him. I want to believe Jesus. I want to trust Jesus. I do believe that he died for my sins. And I do believe that he rose from the dead. And I do believe he's coming back. I do believe that Jesus is alive today. And I want his forgiveness. And I want his salvation. If that's where you're at, all you need to do is, is, is turn to God. You see, the only thing that keeps us from being right with God is our own sin. You say, John, what's sin? Sin is simply us either counterfeiting God, making God something that he's not, whether we think of the the God of the Bible in a way that's not accurate, or we make up a a false God that's not in Scripture, or we, we... live for something other than God as if it were God, a career, a relationship, whatever it is. So sin is, is creating and bowing down to false gods or, listen, it's also ignoring God altogether. I, 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 it's, it's, a, it's a horrible place to be where you feel like life has no point or no meaning, but it's also a sinful place to be. Because the truth is, life has great meaning and purpose. We've been created by God for a reason, to have a relationship with Him. And that God took on flesh to make sure that the one thing that keeps us from knowing Him, our own sinfulness, was dealt with. Because when Jesus died, He died for our sins. That means He took the punishment that we deserve. That means He broke the power of sin over our life so that we can change. That means one day, soon and very soon, when He comes back, there won't be even the presence of sin anymore. So, so to become a Christian simply means to put your faith in Jesus, that he's dealt with your sins. This is why this prayer that Jesus maps out for us is so good. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. If you believe that Jesus is who the Bible says he is, and you've asked him to have mercy on you, according to Jesus, he will. God will have mercy on you. And he will give you new life. You can do that right now. If God's convicting you and convincing you that Jesus is who he said he is, then prayer that prayer in your heart to say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I believe in Jesus. Start that work of change in me. And then come eat with your family. Come celebrate with your your family. Come be one with us.